I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Singer-songwriter and musician Grace Potter joins me on this week's episode of The Sound of Success. Beginning with her debut album, Red Shoe Rebel, in 2002, she has released five solo records, as well as four albums with her band, Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. At the time of this conversation, in October of 2023, her most recent, Mother Road, was released this past summer, so it's still a toddler, really. Grace, I know you've just wrapped a bunch of touring. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Do you do you think of your records as children at all? Uh, this one in particular, yes. Uh, most of the time, I think of songs as children, and I think of records as the womb that contains them. Um, but in this case, it, very much so, because I, I it was actually the whole thing began as a result of me having a miscarriage and going on a journey to to heal and to understand what what it all meant and uh whether it meant anything at all what my what my purpose was in the world if it wasn't to just procreate and a lot of creation came out of that uh adventure and those questions i was asking myself i'm going to talk about that album a little bit later on but let's jump back in time a little bit in fact you are in vermont right now yes where, yes I am. Where, you, where you grew up what, what kind of a kid were you you grew up in a really rural place yeah, yeah. I, I spent time uh, all over the world. I traveled. I was really lucky, but I, I grew up somewhere before I knew that there was a big wide world out there. There was just the Mad River Valley. And that's where I was born and where I grew up. Um, it is, you know, that idyllic thing that you picture when you think about Vermont or you look at one of those pictures of the farm and all that. It's, that's, that was my real life. And, um, you know, I was, I was a house painter and my dad is a sign maker and my mother was a, a, an artist and a piano teacher. And yeah, me, my sister and my little brother grew up, you know, not really realizing how much of the world we weren't seeing until I got the travel bug. So, so a lot of creativity around you yeah. gr growing up. Did your parents say to you, you know, you, you should be working with your hands? They, I mean, it was, it went without saying, I think it go, it's sort of a credo of Vermont in general. There's just this, like, you don't get to not work. You, you have to work. Everybody does it. And it's a pride of place and it's a pride of land stewardship. And I think it's something that in the ecosystem of Vermonters, they're all very kind of independent thinking and not super protective over their creativity. Um, but they very much are protective over their privacy. So it's like work hard so that you can be left alone, which is not me. But it's it's the the ethics, the field of ethics that I grew up in. Yeah. So like most people, you went to school and uh, you went to, to university, but your university life kind of got derailed when you met a drummer. Yes. I, and he, he wasn't even really a drummer at that point. He was a dude who banged on pots and pans at a frat house with a band. That's a drummer. Yeah. But I mean, they had a drummer and he was like the, the additional hand drummer. And all I, I remember is that he would he would play uh, until his fingers were bleeding because either he'd sliced them from hitting a trash can or because, you know, his fingers were about to burst and he just was so excited to to play. And I knew that that he was excited about jamming with me. But yeah, the Nocturnals uh, formed at two in the morning in a small uh, house called the Java House. And there's a little barn off to the side of sort of a, the original garage uh, uh, in my garage band. We're talking about Matt Burr, of course, who uh, became yes. your partner in crime musically and, yes. and together. When you started working together, were you already play, playing music? So Red Shoe Rebel and Original Soul are two records that um, I even had a, an EP before Red Shoe Rebel that was called Hit the Ground uh, that I, fa I famously got out of uh, having to go to do community service when they caught me drinking at, after prom one night because I, I made a record uh, that I used as an, uh, like, this is what I learned from drinking. Yeah, I shouldn't drink. I'm going to write music instead. Mm. Um is a long story, but basically, yeah, music was my, my get out of jail free card, literally, uh, at the tender age of about 14, I think I started recording music. What was your first instrument? Piano. Yeah. Piano was always easy for me because my mom was a piano teacher, so I could 
watch her teaching. And I had that little sort of competitive spirit. And it really, it prompted me uh, after the kids would leave, you know, she would have taught them and I'd say, all right, now teach me what you taught them. And I would just watch her fingers and, and sort of copy along. But I never learned how to read music and, and music just came naturally to me uh, by ear. And I was certainly no student of music by any means. So when you put this band together at two in the morning and uh, appropri appropriately named it the, the, the Nocturnals, originally you were, well, like most bands, releasing music independently. Were you looking for, for a record deal? I just wanted to be out there and be seen. I think I was excited about performance art. I, I was mostly pursuing film in college. Um, I had a, a passion for screenwriting and production design. So to me, rock and roll was another sort of meal ticket to get me into the lights, onto a stage, whatever that meant. Um, I, I really was interested in musical theater until I realized that I don't really like a lot of show tunes. Uh, and that if I was in the musical theater world, that's a, a very specific sort of genre-based cadence and style of singing that did not serve my soul. But there was so much about what Matt presented to me and offered me as far as just how much fun it could be and, and how much agency we would have over ourselves that we didn't really need a label right away. Um, we really did it ourselves. Uh, my first bass player, and we were initially just a jazz trio with an upright bass player named Corey Beard, who had gone to my high school, actually. And Corey's dad rented us their family van, a Chevy Astro. And we made, we made it really for almost two years at the beginning, just gaining traction and having people come listen to us play to the point where the word on the street got around that there's this woman, girl, young, precocious singer, songwriter, really like wiser than her years, old soul voice. And I wasn't looking when the labels started sniffing around. And I didn't even know who these executive characters were, but people were starting to fly up and come see me playing it at this bar called Halverson's on Church Street in Burlington. And I had a residency there, just me, Corey and Matt as a trio. Mm. And there were all these like record executives flying up and coming to see us. And it was really exciting, but also confusing. And again, the Vermont way is to sort of keep your head down and work hard and just, you know, drive, drive your point home by continuing to be excellent, uh, but not seeking it out. You're not really supposed to, not supposed to look for it. It should just come to you. And in, in that particular case, it did. And it was uh, quite, quite exciting. You told me that at the time you were supporting yourself by doing uh, plastering sheetrock work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a house painter at first, but I, it, I discovered that I really, really enjoyed renovating old homes and trying to continue to maintain the patina of historic properties. And you can actually, um, you, can get, you can get more money if you get this little certification um, and especially with houses that are like protected under the historical society in Vermont. Mm -hmm. So I was one of those people you could hire out to, to make it look like to repaint the deck, but make it look like it's still old or, you know, do a fresco mural that is a, a recreation of a painting that has long, you know, just been destroyed or disintegrated and, and bring it back to life. Um, you know, or use the original style material or, salvage, you know, these beautiful old doors and all that stuff was super fascinating to me. And being that my dad worked in wood and, and, um, made signs and my mom as well, uh, painted hand painted wooden bowls. I just had that touch and it, it was really a, a joy and it paid really well. Um, so that's how I funded my first two records actually. You and I actually have a little more in common than I thought when I, when I lived in Woodstock, New York, um, yeah. I had an Astro van. It was called Hugo. It was red. Oh, that'd be a great name. Ours yeah. was mar maroon red. Yeah, ours was yeah. red. But yeah. Yeah, wow. I think it was like Hugo. a maroon color. I don't know. I'm red and green colorblind, so who knows? And, and I also did house painting because, you know, I didn't actually, wasn't allowed to work here legally at the time. So oh, I, right. So yeah. I did house painting. I loved it. Man, house painting is 
an amazing skill set because it gives you ideas for songs. And painting also allows for what I've found to be a little bit of that high that you get a little high, you know, when you when you get those VOC fumes that, of course, they don't have anymore. But I, I definitely I, I kind of enjoyed that. And I'd be listening to music and it's where a lot of my ideas came from and a lot of the inspiration and sort of subconscious conjuring of, of lyrical styles famed from the fact that my painting team was a bunch of really cool baby boomer, you know, rockers that were all from Vermont and, and had maybe moved here to recreate their own American dream and uh, listen to all the rock and roll that comes with it, you know. So you're you're painting, you're plastering, you've got the band and record label people are coming to see you. Yeah. And in, I think, 2005, you signed with Hollywood Records, mm -hmm. which is the record label of Disney. Yes. And when you get the machine to swing behind you, things really do start to to move, don't they? Because I know you did a lot of TV appearances, yeah. the late night TV shows, access to having songs in movies and, and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. What was that time like going from playing locally to all of a sudden having the resources to, to really get out there? Yeah, that was, I think it was a seminal couple of years of understanding what, what can happen with your art when somebody truly champions you and has the finances and the resources to put you in front of and get you in the room with people who are already really good at what they do. Um, I, I took it so for granted, I think, at the time. Uh, but I was excited about working with Disney because of this fact that the machine, uh, I, I don't really, didn't feel like a machine as much as it felt like an octopus with lots and lots of really helpful tentacles mm. kind of um wrapping itself around the parts of me that in vermont you know where i had grown up i would have been discouraged to pursue and it felt as a young woman who i was kind of an ugly duckling and then suddenly sort of being launched into this place where i could be whoever i wanted to be i could shape shift and be a cartoon voice one day work with tim burton and and score, you know, some kind of crazy credit music the next day um, uh, to these collaborations and being handed a script and say, I don't know, just write a song that sounds like this titles of this script. You know, all of that's happening. And the band is continuing to tour in the same hardworking, just nose to the grindstone way that we had kind of set in motion before any of the labels had come calling. So I kind of continued the the quest and the road dog approach while also di diversifying. And I think those four years basically between 2005 when we signed and, you know, 2008, 2009, when, um, when things really started to rocket away, you know, seeing, seeing my face on the side of Guitar Center at, on Sunset Strip and, mm. um, and, and having, you know, my signature Flying V with Gibson, all these exciting things that started coming my way um, didn't feel like it was a coincidence that I had, yeah, that I had signed with a company that was really making a point. And, and in particular, it was Bob Cavallo, who was the head of Disney Music Group, as well as um, Hollywood Records at the time. I think I was his swan song. You know, he managed... Prince and Little Feet. That's part of why I signed with them. I, I loved that he managed Little Feet and Love and Spoonful and the Mamas and the Papas. And these are, you know, the stories that he would tell are the reason why I loved being in the room with him. And um, and I think he saw that in me. I think he saw a little like Linda Ronstadt kind of maybe Annie Lennox and, uh, you know, whatever it was about me that stirred something up in him. I think I was sort of his last charge um, before he retired. Talking about Guitar Center, you and I first met, I think, about a decade ago. Yeah. At that Guitar Center in, uh, in, in Hollywood when I was hosting the DirecTV show Guitar Center Sessions. And it was, it was coming up towards the end of the Nocturnals when, when we met, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was right around the time that I had been touring. I did the You and Tequila song with Kenny Chesney, and we had been on that that tour with with Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, and Jake Owen. And so there had been this sort of dabbling into new genres. 
And we talked a little bit about that in that interview. That was one of my favorite interviews, Nick. I loved that whole experience of meeting you and seeing the way that you do your thing. Because if I'm not mistaken, Gavin Rosdale, you interviewed Gavin Rosdale the same day, taped yeah. that and, and then taped mine. And just watching you do your thing, I was like, wow, that is, that is a very cool job and a very cool guy who knows exactly how to do that job. And nobody else could really do it quite like that. You know, it was a very... Uh, I learned a lot from you that day. Well, you're too kind. Uh, I, yeah. I loved doing that show. And uh, I do remember that day. And I remember you in particular. The, the Gavin thing was was interesting. But I also remember he had this very strange shirt on. Yeah, we talked about the shirt. Yeah, that shirt was a whole thing. I remember that. It's <laughs> because <good>. wardrobe. <laughs> it wasn't really a shirt. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah. We would tape two a day. And so we, we did him earlier on and then you in the afternoon. And it, it was fabulous. Yeah. And I really enjoyed meeting you. And then obviously we've bumped into each other through the years around yeah. um, because you moved to California and lived in Topanga mm -hmm. where you still have a home. And I know you sort of split yes. your time between Vermont and uh, Topanga now, which is a place for those of you who don't know, wherever you may be listening, it's just outside of Los Angeles. And it's a little community up in the hills that was originally as most places in America started off as a, a Native American settlement and then yeah. in the 20s became a place that the Hollywood celebrities of the day would have like little cabins and get out of town and then the hippies came in. Yeah. It's a special place. It's a very special place. And in fact, it's a, I think it is this, it's more of the subversion of the Los Angeles culture is what so many people flock to Topanga to experience. And, you know, during the McCarthy era, uh, people were being accused of being communists and and being homosexuals, which, of course, many people were closeted homosexuals in in the Hollywood community. And I didn't I didn't know a lot about it, but I got deeper and deeper into the history of it by meeting, as you mentioned, some of the sages of Topanga, uh, because there there is still a, a deep connection and a rooted understanding of the fact that we are absolutely guests on the land and the tribal and burial. There's a lot of incredible rituals. Uh, land and stone circles and waterfalls and monuments all through the ge the geological sort of landscape of Topanga. And um, people who go there, I think, are looking for something. It's a seeker's community, for sure. It's no accident that people like yourself from Vermont and myself who lived in Woodstock end up in Topanga because... Yeah. It's kind of like those places, only it's right next to Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, back to back to the music. So the Nocturnals came to an end and you set out on a solo career. And I think your first gig was opening for the Stones during, yeah. the, zip, during the Zip You're Code not, Tour, right? It's not even an exaggeration. That was like, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't want to have the band anymore. But, you know, I am going to go conquer the world, starting with Mick Jagger. Yeah, let's just don't let's go do this. And I really wanted so much for that experience to be about coming into my own and sort of the emancipation from a feeling like I'm fraud owed it to somebody else to be who I was. And I remember that because I was still, you know, crusty when a band breaks up, all kinds of drama. You know, there's any any number of weird rabbit hole stories that you can get into with with all rock bands and when they come to an end how it works out but that story and the fact that it sounds like fiction um is what i love so much about the arc of of my career and of, of the experience of kind of being on a ride the whole time just chasing art is that it can lead you to the strangest places like yeah like on stage singing give me shelter with the rolling stones <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I saw that. I mean, I didn't see the tour, but I, I saw that as I was reading, you know, preparing for our conversation today. And I knew you'd done that tour, but I saw that thing. So, yeah. And then, you know, she would go out and do Gimme Shelter with the Stones. And I, I just have yeah. to ask, I mean, dude, what was that like? fucking leaveable It is the best moment of my life. And what I loved the most about it was that as the moment was approaching, I wasn't scared and I wasn't thinking I don't deserve to be here. Um, how did I get here? I knew exactly how I got there and I knew exactly what it had taken. So for all the stumbling through life and like, okay, just let them come to me. I guess things don't just fall into your lap. 
And so as auspicious as the beginning of my career was with people coming and finding me, I worked my ass off to get to that place. And I just remember the feeling of a real feeling of accomplishment to the point where I, I don't know if I'm ever going to beat it. I still haven't quite. <laughs> I'm still grinding at it, but man, it was just one of those highs that you can't come down from. Making solo records again started around that time with, with Midnight. Yeah. And then you followed it up with Daylight. And then let's talk about the new, the new record. And let's also talk about Eric yeah. Valentine, who you met and started working with. And then you're married and you have a kid. Yeah. Big changes from being in a band to being a solo artist again and becoming a mother. Can you take us yeah. through those, those first couple of years? Well, it's funny because I think I don't call myself a solo artist. I've always been me. And I think that the band was a peripheral exploration into genre that felt like an identity that people really attached themselves to. And so out of convenience, you know, I certainly adopted the, the title of and the Nocturnals because it felt like I really enjoyed being around those people and I wanted to honor them by naming them. But I had already been myself before, you know, and as a songwriter and I'd written all the songs in the Nocturnals. I was I was the the primary songwriter and I'd created so much work and that body of work I felt was beginning to distinguish itself from the genre of like 70s rock guitar sound classic thing. And it was exploring some new things. And at the same time, on a personal level, I was exploring who I really was and where things felt like they'd gotten derailed in my life. Because I, I realized that, you know, I was pursuing film before getting into the, the band and performance art in many different scopes. It, it was a liberal arts college, St. Lawrence University that I was going to. But as I came into my own, I was also doing it in front of everybody, you know, it, with a very public audience of people who had already decided that I was Linda Ronstadt or Vera Fawcett or, you know, this hippie chick from Vermont or this humble preacher that just like continues to celebrate a, a series of really amazing and talented styles of music that all kind of flow in this one direction. And it didn't feel like the whole me. You know, I felt like the whole me was on a journey. And at the age of 19, I stopped that journey and I jumped on to this train with this band. But I insisted on having my own name out in front of it. And I think it might have been a mistake because now I think whenever I talk about solo or, you know, being a solo artist, I think it feels like a minus as opposed to a plus, mm. you know, because Grace Potter and the, so what happened to the and the, it's like now I've lost my, my tail or, you know, yet yeah, like the boosters of the rocket are heading back to earth or something. And that's not ever how I looked at it. I think for the sake of, for, for the sake of those guys as well as myself, there's always going to be a before and after, but it's not a solo and then, you know, uh, Grace Potter solo and Grace Potter when I had that thing. And so for the sake of moving forward, I just want to clear that up and make sure that it's clear to you because I I, I think part of my daylight and midnight journey was about um, emancipating myself from the misunderstanding that the and the was even necessary to begin with from the very beginning that as a provocateur on a college campus who caught a people's attention and I couldn't believe that anybody wanted to hang out with me at all. I felt like the journey of bringing a band into the world was not my journey. It was somebody else's journey. And I was happy to be the lead singer of it. But when I, when I started doing the solo work with Eric, what I really discovered was that I was finally meeting back up with my 19-year-old self and beginning the conversation not anew, but w with all this new information that I had, you know, adopted over the 13 years of touring with Matt and the rest of the guys in the band. But I don't think it was so much about my career anymore as much as it was about becoming a person, going back to just being Grace, not this little girl from Vermont, but a real artist and, and somebody who had something that she'd been saying all along. Um, so Daylight was sort of that pronunciation uh, 
after midnight, which was basically just like, yeah, that was the rocket, the rocket crashing back into the earth. I think midnight was a very fun exploration into new genres that I had always wanted to explore, but I didn't feel like I could with, with the band. As we work our way to the new album, Mother Road, I, I mentioned at the beginning of, of that, that you became a mom. Uh, yeah. you, you have a, a son. H how did that change things for you? At first, it brought me into a place with my body that was really important. I think that the physical presence that I've always had is superfluous to my brain and my imagination. My, you know, it's like my, my head is up here, way up here. And my body is just this like fun puppet show that people get to watch. But, you know, I always pictured that I was elsewhere channeling and bringing energy from the universe down and out my extremities uh, for the world to enjoy, hopefully. But with having a child, there is nothing more powerful than knowing within your bones that as much as the universe might be summoning you and calling you and you know, sending you these messages of like, what, what about this? What about that? Uh, you really have nothing more to do in this world than appreciate the fact that your body can do this incredible thing and that this human can be both of you and, and not you and then come out of you and then grow up in front of you and start, you know, having this consciousness and this awareness of something that is beyond you. And I think it's been a really interesting arc to go from like this sort of divining rod, crazy, you know, crackerjack character down into my body, like truly not underground, not like a sunken ship, but very much rooted in this idea of, of being in my body. And then to, to watch that sort of begin to unfold anew now that he's really growing into a sentient being with super awesome opinions and he's funny and he's musical and he's charismatic and he knows how to roll his eyes and all these things that are sort of opening back up. And now I start feeling the same thing that I felt coming through me, I am seeing it in him. And it's like, oh, maybe I don't have to do the divining rod thing anymore. Maybe he can just do it for me. But that's not really how it works. I still feel it. It's an ongoing journey as well. You know, I have twins who, uh, when I lived in Topanga, they, they were born when I lived in Topanga, they're 20 now. And uh, I'm in that space of trying to figure out how to let them be young adults. It's really interesting, you know, because we have these kids and they're all helpless and everything. And then, as you said, they become sentient beings and yeah. as they get older, they, they have their, their shit just like the rest of us. And their shit is important too, like more important than your shit, if you ask them. And yeah. so it's fun, you know, and I think that's been the fun journey of um, getting out of my own way, you know, whether it's to do with songwriting or, uh, you know, some big idea I have or just watching, you know, getting caught up in Instagram or yeah. some silly, you know, news report that I'm listening to that he would come in having found his Pikachu sock and truly believe that that is a much more urgent conversation that needs to be had right then and there than anything that I've been doing. And I think it just, it's not even overwhelming. It's just joyful. And again, it, it, it has grounded me in many ways, but it's also sparked, I think, that urgency that I feel um, to declare myself and really set boundaries in my art and in my pursuits in life and in the time that I'm spending on the planet. Uh, because I want to make sure not to miss this awesome Pikachu sock yeah. and make sure to help them find it, you know, and 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 uh, I think there's there's something to be said for for being in that orchard and uh, and taking the low hanging fruit while it's here because you're you're in a place, I think, with twins that are 20 where the fruit is farther from you. And, you know, uh, and I think they're taking things in their own way, taking their own direction but i think um i'm not scared of that era for sagan i'm i'm much more scared of how much i still think i'm a five and a half year old if that makes any sense you know i think the greatest gift of, of parenthood if you're if you're able to allow yourself to to take it 
is is understanding that the world is so much bigger than just you. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you get to see it through 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 that. Yeah. Let's talk about Mother Road because we started at the beginning of this conversation and then we'll get to my music questions. I'm having so much fun talking to you again. Yeah, this is so great. Because we have seen each other around in the last 10 years, but not actually worked together like this and had a conversation. So it's it's, uh, yeah. it's an overdue catch up. You mentioned at the beginning that, that Mother Road came about after you'd had a miscarriage. Yeah. I know you also took a, a trip across the country, so maybe you can give us a, a little bit more of the genesis be, behind the, the songs uh, that ended up on the album. So I actually took four, four cross-country trips, but I did it because when you start thinking about making a record, uh, any, any artist is going to be terrified. It's just like an artist standing, crippling fear standing in front of a canvas with your paints and just not knowing where to begin. Um, Source information is helpful. It's one of the things I loved about working with Disney is that there would be a prompt and a prompt is much easier. It's like doing a crossword puzzle and you can fill in and your creativity and your brain can plug in and play. This was not a plug and play experience for me. This was a really harrowing and difficult time in which um, I also I, I had never struggled with any kind of mental health disturbances. But like many of us during covid I think there was a universal outcrying and outreach and discussion about mental health that brought me this, I guess, the, the willingness to accept the fact that my brain wasn't working the way it used to. And my heart was not feeling as good as it had been. And my body had told me why by rejecting this, this child that I was really excited to bring into the world. Um, the timing of the whole thing felt meaningless and un I couldn't understand. It didn't feel like, oh, this all makes sense. It was actually the opposite. It was like, why is this happening to me? And I've never thought in that sort of victim base before. And so for me, the process of making daylight came from joy, came from a spark in my heart that felt like, how can I not share this joy with the world? But also I had to address all the devastation that it had left behind. Mother Road comes at it from a really different angle because my prompt was, I'm not okay. I'm going to go chase these demons down the road. I'm going to go actually get in my car, start the engine and keep driving until I either chase them down and run them over, sit them in the car with me and have a conversation or feel them blow off of me by driving ridiculously fast across the country four times, which is basically what, what you know, the, the visual stimulation of the landscape and, and really taking the drive. And it was very much literally the mother road. I, I was on Route 66 for a very good portion of a lot of these trips. Um, it's a wonderful drive. It's a, it's a rite of passage, you know. Um, and I think the American dream changed for me somewhere in there. Uh, in in chasing down this sort of rock and roll, you know, almost famous tour bus, pretending it's the 1970s thing. All of that facade went away um, when when I became a mom. And then my truth and my essence, I felt had been discovered. I felt like I had my happy ending. You know, the frogs in Topanga, the the trees and the the ocean air and and the mountains. And I had this love of my life guy and everything felt like a celebration. Um, and then everything fell apart and the world fell apart and my mind fell apart and my body fell apart. So in coaxing the songs out, which I, I don't think I, I meant to do, but um, I didn't really want to write an album. I wanted to have a movie with an original motion picture soundtrack. And, um, and the movie had been playing out in my mind over the course of those trips that I had taken. And ultimately, the songs that fell together felt like it felt like post. It felt like going through and editing in post and picking and choosing and cherry picking the journey with all the drama and bravado and swagger and passion and power that I felt inside myself as I was chasing down these demons and um, ultimately never really quite catching up to them because, well, look at me. I'm still totally fucked up. 
you just got to keep moving. I mean, that's uh, yeah. that that that's how it works for me. And you know, I, yeah. I have to say that I recommend to anybody if you have the time to drive across the United States, you should well, do it. Yes, because absolutely. there's nothing like it. I've done it a couple of times. I've been across and yeah. back twice. Um, yeah. in, in the Astro van, by the way. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. How do we yeah. do? I mean, it was probably still pretty new though when when you did that. So yeah. I, I'm guessing. Yeah. It's been like a while, the yeah. The first, the first time around was um, uh, like 1989, the first time I was uh -huh. here. Yeah. The second time was in the, in the early 90s. I did lose my mind when I was in California on the second trip, and I drove back in, in literally like two days, I think. I drove from yeah. San Francisco to um, somewhere in Arkansas in one hit. Holy fuck. <laughs> Slept for 12 hours. And then drove the rest of the way back to, to Woodstock and arrived, I think, with, you know, a gallon of gas in the tank and $2 in my pocket. Ah, oh, the good old days. Great. Oh, man, I know. I, I never fucked with those trucker pills, but I mean, it sounds to me like you did. You had, you must have had something. Caffeine tablets. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it right there. Yeah. That's wild, man. That's insane. Well, the the record is out, and I know you've done some, some touring. You just recently uh, got off the road, but you're about to jump on again. So for yeah. anybody listening to this as we're making it, you know, at the end of 2023, what's coming up? This is exciting. I, I mean, this tour is a project that I have taken on. It's not so much a promise to myself as it is. I think this is my final massive investment in live music. And because after this, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it different, more like the Stones. I'm going to have to get more into like my Mick Jagger era of really pacing myself and making it physically possible for me to be a mom and be in any one place at, for a large window of time. But for the next two years, both make two to four years, um, Mother Road is going to be out on the road, weaving these wild tales and performing with me and my awesome band uh, every which way in every direction. Um, we did just confirm a bunch of dates with Chris Stapleton that I'm super excited about, including the Hollywood Bowl, which is, I've, I've played there twice. I played there with uh, Stevie Wonder and Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings uh, and Janelle Monet years ago. But then I also uh, performed for Bill Clinton's birthday there with a bunch of amazing artists. And I haven't been back or performed there in so long. So that was one date that I wanted to have kind of be a, a linchpin in the tour because I feel that the Mother Road tour has to behave like the Mother Road. We need to go from east to west, then from west to east. So I've got my linchpins. I've got the Hollywood Bowl as one. And ultimately, right now, there's the Beacon Theater, which is another in New York City. Um, but I'm going to just keep pinging back and forth between coasts. Um, and, and making my way across every city um, and then move up to Canada and hopefully down to South America, Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, and, and keep it going all the way through 2024. At this point, we have uh, pretty much pretty well penciled in a huge amount of that year. Um, so yeah, it's a big one. Touring and the title of the album, Mother Road, is really specifically about the fact that I think um, the project is more than an album. It's more than a story. It's more than a tour. It's more than a TV series or a movie even. It's really, um, I think it's the essence of who I have become. It's, I am, a, I am a mother and I have, you know, I've grown into the, the woman that I am on the road. And so in many ways, the road has raised me. So I, I am both it and it is me. And the road has taken me in some wild directions. But I figure that communicating with fans and inviting them into that journey and, and having them come along and do a little ride along is what these concerts are all about. It's really just feeling like we're, you know, the audience is hitchhikers for the night in this dreamscape that, that has been living inside of me for four years now. And I'm just, I'm super excited to get it out into the world. And I think I'm going to take this, this style of, creative expression with me through the rest of my career because it feels like a sustaining force and something that the world needs, you know, these experiences. You can't click or like or tag yourself, you know, on a screen the way that you can when you feel exercised from your pain 
at a live show. And that's really something I think I do better than a, a huge amount of people on the planet. I've worked really hard to learn how to do it and I do it really well. So I'm going to, I'm going to go throw it all out there. Just leave it, leave it on stage. Okay. So let's, let's get into the, the questions and, um, bad on me because I didn't send them to you in advance. That's okay. Um, so you're going to be winging it's a, it's it. It's a quiz. It's a quiz. It's I'm, a quiz. I'm ready you, for the quiz show. I, I've been winging my whole career. So welcome. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what is your first musical memory? Laying under the pews at the Unitarian Church in at the top of Church Street in Burlington, listening to an instrumental band called Doa that was a small selection of the Penguin Orchestra. I'm not sure if you know the Penguin Orchestra, but... It was a subsidiary of a couple of members of the Penguin Orchestra had gone to the Andes. Penguin Cafe uh, Orchestra? Yeah, the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Thank you. Yep. Um, and, they'd go, and they'd gone down and done some kind of a, you know, soul journey trip in the Andes and had come back with a bunch of pan flutes and ocarinas and um, instruments uh, that felt a little bit like a gamelan orchestra made of only wood, wood and more woodwind uh, instruments. And, um, so I fell, I just remember falling asleep under the pews and feeling just incredibly at peace and also wondering whose feet were right in front of my eyes as I was looking at the, you know, looking at these person's feet, you know, it's just strangers. I haven't thought of the Penguin Cafe Orchestra for years. I'm I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to dig some out this afternoon. It's inspired, Uh, man. It's very cool. And the son of that, that whole group. Has, has started it back up again and they're doing a bunch of stuff now. Yeah, they're back at it. What was the first music you bought with your own money? Oh my God, Tripping Daisy, Flaming Lips, Faith Hog. It was all in one shopping trip at Pure Pop in Burlington. And um, my sister had tried to get me to do that BMG, you know, you pay $13 for 13 CDs thing, which mm. put everybody in, in, in debt for the rest of their lives. I had missed the train on that and she had gotten all these like Pearl Jam records and she was into Pearl Jam, REM and all that. But I, I, I thought of that as like sad bastard rock. You know, I was like, I don't want to listen to sad bastard music. I want to go find what are the crazy people doing? So, uh, you know, um, yeah, like, I don't want to, I don't care if everybody hurts. Fuck that. I, I want to go fucking, where's my Cindy Lauper? So I bought, um, yeah. So I bought, it was, it was, Donna Summer, Tripping Daisy, Space Hog, Flaming Lips, Alanis Morissette, and an Elvis record because I liked the the cover on the record. And it, it turned out to be the, it was just the soundtrack to Viva Las Vegas, you know, him and Anne Margaret. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that was, that was it. It was a, it was a, a large pile of things. Yeah. What was the first concert you went to? The first concert I remember is that Doa concert with the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. But the first rock concert where I was like, oh, this is a concert, not just like a Unitarian Church acoustic performance, was Bonnie Raitt at Sugarbush North with Bruce Hornsby opening for her. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Mucha Muchacha by Esquivel. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Mucha Muchacha by Esquivel. Um, ah. yeah, actually, uh, honest, honestly, that it, it really does. It ticks a lot of boxes for me. But um, when I'm feeling sad, it's uh, ain't that a kick in the head, Dean Martin. Nice. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? I, I'm on my uh, on my little playlist here. I've got all my it's on my Tiki Pond playlist. So something that happened in the year that we moved back to Vermont, I um, I had a mental breakdown. And I think clinical depression, but I also got back into figure skating because I was a figure skater. It's one of the many things that you do when you're a kid uh, in Vermont. There's just not a lot to do. So ice skating is just a must. And I didn't want to play hockey. So I ended up, you know, working hard on grooming my pond into an ice rink um, because it is among many other cool things about our property with a huge, awesome pond and it freezes over and it makes for a great skating rink. 
So um, I dyed the the water and the ice into a turquoise, like aquamarine Caribbean blue. And I planted fake plastic palm trees in the ice and built the ice up around it and made myself a tiki pond in the middle of the winter. Um, and I will, I will send you pictures of it because it's quite a thing. Lujan by Henry Mancini from the album, Mr. Lucky Goes Latin, for sure. <laughs> I'm just going just gonna to let people know who are listening to this that you knew the song, but you couldn't remember the title. And we've just spent 25 yeah. We literally just like an entire lifetime of a fly has gone by. I've watched a fly be born, fly around this room and die in the time it took us to figure out what that fucking song was called. (laughs) But it's I knew it. The melody of it is so memorable and so entrenched in my soul. It's it's like a warm bath uh, for, for my heart. And every single time I hear it. It also has such a provocative essence and it has an elegance that feels like not just my goal in life, but like what I, I think it's like my homeostasis, the sound of homeostasis in my heart is, is that song. And by the way, if you're, if you're trapped on a, on a desert island, it's perfect. So yes, very much so. By the way, it has way more listens than any other song from Mr. Lucky Goes Latin. So I would recommend you listen to the whole record uh, because if you're on a desert island, you wouldn't have just one song. I feel like you would have a whole album. So let's just be fair about this and and give give the whole album a chance. But but yeah, Luhan is, is the one. Do you have a favorite music video? Yeah, I do. I, I was just recently thinking about this because for me, anytime I see a great band live i always go like oh they shouldn't make music videos and it feels like bad bands make great music videos and great bands just go make music or at least that was my 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 state of mind at the time until i saw blind melons no rain that's my favorite music video and that little girl the big girl it's me though you know and it's the me that lives inside my heart at all times she's she is my spirit animal do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? It doesn't have to necessarily be a new band, but something that's new to you. Yeah, actually, I mean, I just was on the phone with a very cool band. It was funny. It's the guy who's designing my posters for my tour. And um, we were waxing poetic about all kinds of awesome things that I I was really excited about. It turned out like a lot of similar taste in music. We were talking about Lee Hazelwood and and mamas and the papas and suddenly he's like well actually my band's playing tonight we're opening for the walkman and i was like what's your band and it's called cosmic guilt and beside the fact that it's got some of the coolest graphics ever because jimmy's doing the graphics and they've just got great great images it's cool music i i i don't listen to a lot of modern bands um and it's rare for me to to dive in but it's something that uh, you know i just clicked on one i clicked on their title track and it's just got a, a fun vintage feel to it and, you know, something that I will definitely be listening more to. I'm talking like that's the newest musical discovery that I made like moments before we got on the phone. So um, I don't know much about them beyond the one song I listened to, but it was a song called Cosmic Guilt and a band called Cosmic Guilt. All right. We're going to look that up. Uh, I yeah. see, a, see a picture of them. There's like 10 people in this band. Yes. There's a lot of people in the band. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's the, um, hence, hence, hence the mamas and the papas sweeping Lee Hazelwood approach, I guess. Yeah. What band or artist do you love, but you feel they never quite got the break they deserved? There's a lot of those. And it's, it's interesting because I don't go out and see live music as much as I used to. But Tank and the Bangas um, played my festival and I've watched them win over not just the crowd, but like this, every song, every, every heart beat of their music was touching everybody there and it's like people get amnesia after something incredible like that happens and they came back through town to play and they didn't sell out the venue that they should have easily sold out um so when i think about live music that's that's the band that hits me i think sandy denny is is the artist that i I really wish um had had a more successful and, and enjoyable life i think her experience in life was 
not as fun as it could have been for her had she gone, you know, and been received at the time as opposed to after the fact in the way that I, I have always received her. He was also in uh, Fairport Convention, which was right. a band from, from my hometown of, of Birmingham. How could I forget? How could I forget? I mean, that's the thing is, is that that's, I guess, what I mean by some, some people are solo artists always. And I feel like she's one of them. She's someone who I don't think solo is a word that anybody would apply to Sandy Denny because she came from the primordial ooze of Airport Convention. Yeah. And she, you know, and it, her essence is, you know, rubbed all over that gorgeous Led Zeppelin song. But to me, what I find haunting and and incredible about her are the songs that uh, took her outside of that sort of ego bubble or band bubble. But I never thought of her as a solo artist, even in hearing her music, you know, who knows where the time goes. And, you know, those those records are just incredible. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? I mean, I like band Ace of Bass a lot. Yeah. That was always my guilty pleasure, even back in the day. It was like, yeah, Ace of Bass. When I first got into radio up in Woodstock, however many years ago that was, because yeah. that's when Ace of Bass were out. Yeah. When they when they first released, I, I remember we were playing them on a, an alternative uh, radio station, and then they just exploded. It was just cool music. Like, it didn't... Swedish, right? Yeah, they were Swedish, and yeah. they weren't doing the ABBA thing. It was, like, way dumber. They dumbed it all down so much that it it made it kind of cool and punk rock. Yeah. And I think they, they got the joke. I, I you know, I, I, I'm even a little bit loath to refer to it as a guilty pleasure because I just think it was awesome. But it was definitely not cool to listen to in Vermont, at least growing up where I was living. That was not not what the cool kids were listening to at all. And a final question, and I don't want to wrap this up, but how are you feeling right now? Right in this exact moment, my heart pressure, my blood pressure is lowering, lowering as we go. Like it feels like the edge of a precipice has been breached and we are now on the other side of the perfect storm. Is that your description of doing Nick Halcourt's podcast? Yeah, it was a perfect storm. You were the scary waves and now we're now it's over. I'm really happy about that. Mate, it's so good to catch up with you and spend a little bit of time with you. Thank you so much. I loved every second of it. And I, you know, uh, may we may we run into each other in Topanga or Vermont or, you know, in, in a Frank Lloyd Wright house in the Big Lebowski movie. Um, however and whenever it can happen, it's always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 